Okay, we're live. Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On today's show, I have a very special guest. His name is Kamal Gupta, and he just published a book May 10th, 2022. Title of the book is Play It Right, The Remarkable Story of a Gambler Who Beat the Odds on Wall Street. And there is an audio book of this. There's a hardcover and softcover. Uh, Kamal Gupta earned an undergraduate degree in electrical engineering from the Indi Indian Institute of Technology in New Delhi entering the elite institution after only completing the 11th grade, and he has received a master's in computer science from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in just 11 months. Bored in the tech world, he turned himself into a professional blackjack player, and then an unexpected, unexpected turn of events brought him to Wall Street, where for over two decades he beat the odds in every imaginable way. Kamal Gupta now lives in the greater New York City area with his family. And again, the book we're going to talk about today is Play It Right. So Kamal Gupta, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Awesome. So for people, maybe this is your first book. Can you kind of talk? You have a very interesting life and a great book. We were talking in the pre-show what we uh, really have a great sense of humor. But can you kind of talk about your background growing up in India and then what led you into these different curious careers? You've had uh, quite an arc of uh, in your life. So can you talk about that? It is. I've had quite an unusual arc. I mean, I think I've had four different professions going back from author. Before that, I was a hedge fund manager on Wall Street, and before that, a professional blackjack player. And then it all started with being a computer scientist. But it all goes back to growing up in India. And I grew up in India in the 70s and in the early 80s, which was a very difficult time. It was pretty turbulent you know, period in Indian history. And um, it was, those were my formative years. And I, I, I mean, I write in the book about my high school years, as well as my college time at, at the Indian Institute of Technology in New Delhi. And the, the one thing that really affected me in those years was the fact that I found that people by and large around me and from the lowest level to the highest level abused their authority and that I couldn't trust what was going on around me. And you know, this is reflected in the harrowing set of events that take place in fall of 1984, um, which is also described in the book. But I think what I took away from my childhood was that I didn't. I, I just had this inherent rebellion, rebellious streak against you know authority and and especially abuse of authority, and I couldn't stand to see unfairness of any kind. Um, and India in those years and maybe even today is is was like filled with unfairness, and to a large extent America today is as well. But in my life, I mean, whenever I encountered unfairness, I, I tried to deal with it in my own little way and. And I came to America when I finished undergraduate, my undergraduate degree in electrical engineering, having completely lost all interest in, in the subject. So I came to the US to study computer science, which was a natural offshoot of electrical engineering, only to discover that I had no interest in computer science either. I mean, I worked in the computer industry for a few years, Honeywell in Minneapolis, Oracle in the Bay Area. But the whole time I was searching for something else to do. I couldn't imagine spending the rest of my time, most of my life, sitting in a cubicle, punching on a keyboard all day long. I mean, I couldn't imagine anything more soul crushing than that. Um, and on a, you know, on a ski trip to Lake Tahoe, I discovered blackjack. I mean, just, you know, I was there only to have dinner. I mean, I had no interest in gambling or casinos before then because it was obvious to anyone watching the goings on inside a casino that from the chandeliers down to the carpets, everything in a casino is paid for by the losses of the gamblers. Without those losses, those, those large buildings would not be standing. So, I mean, why am I going to play this game? Until I discovered 
that blackjack is the only casino game where by counting cards, you can turn the odds in your favor and against the houses. And even more importantly, I found out that the guy whose book I read, his name is Ken Houston, the book was called Million Dollar Blackjack. He was not only thrown out of many casinos for having the audacity to use his brain while playing the game, he was also arrested and beaten on several times, on several occasions. And that to me was just wrong and unfair. And, and, and I decided that I was gonna follow in his footsteps and become a prof professional blackjack player and teach the casinos a small lesson in my own little way. I mean, I knew I'm not gonna change you know, the industry, but I was driven by the fact that the casinos don't offer a fair game to their clients. And you know, they essentially choose their customers. So if you, if you can beat them, they'll throw you out. It's a fate that I suffered on many occasions. And, and as, it's not very easy to count cards, is it? I mean, you became an expert and you had almost kind of like a spy versus spy approach to it. Uh, can you talk about the kind of techniques and it is the strategy is. that you had to, to pull it off? Oh, yeah, it's definitely a spy versus a spy because there is a game of blackjack, which is essentially pure math, right? I mean, but then there is another game within the game, which is how do you continue playing the game without getting kicked out? if they were to identify you as a card counter, um, and which they certainly will. So first I became an expert card counter by practicing for months and months, like six to eight hours a day at home. And then once, and it, it took another six or eight months before I was able to consistently beat the casinos. And then I got thrown out a few times. So I had to take a lot of evasive measures. So I didn't get kicked out again. I mean, starting with, you know, playing with fake names, under fake names. In the early 90s, the casinos would make you a card with any name you gave them. And then there was no ID check, nothing. So I, I just made up names. I took all my friends' first and last names and mixed and matched them so I would remember what the names were and used a separate name in every casino. I mean, I lowered my bet variation. I took on the persona of a plastics importer-exporter from India who was just this wild and crazy guy. I and mean, I started acting like a madman on the tables because I practiced card counting so much that I could count cards with just a glance. So I had a few seconds left over in every hand, which I used to just act like a nut job, which was, only, which was an act to make the casinos think that if the guy is so animated and so like, um, you know, vociferous about whatever he's doing, he couldn't possibly be counting cards because it's well understood counting cards requires a lot of concentration. Um, so I acted like a madman on the tables and, you know, and finally I started stealing my own chips from the table in order to make my stack smaller. So I became an expert in palming a chip because the eye in the sky is always watching you. So I became an expert in putting my hand on the table and palming my chips or a chip at a time, uh, and squirreling it away into my pocket. And slowly, you know, by, by the end of the session, I mean, I, whether I'd won or lost, it would appear that I'd won less than I'd won, and I, or I would have lost more than I'd really lost. So the casinos didn't realize how much I was winning and those small amount, the chips that I squirreled away, I would, I would cash them in small increments throughout the day. Sometimes I would take, even take them back home to San Francisco and just keep cycling through the chips and use them as my bankroll. So I was forced and to you take had the, your you had your Campari and uh, soda you could take to the bathroom. Oh, right. That's right. So, that's so you had all kinds of techniques. Yes, yeah. there was another. I'm glad you mentioned that because I had this drink called Campari and tonic. And I, and I like the taste of the drink. But the real reason I ordered the drink was because Campari is a blood red 
liquor, right? Like it's a blood red drink. And we, even when you mix it with, with, with tonic, it has a distinctive color. So during the, while I, was, while I was gambling, I would take the drink with me to the men's room, water it down such that the color sort of still stayed, but the alcohol was down to like minimal. So the casinos thought I was ordering drink after drink and apparently drinking it in front of them. They had no way of knowing that most of it was water. Um, so, I mean, it was like, a, a, it was like a show that I had to put on for the pit boss's benefit just so I didn't get kicked out and I could continue playing. And it, it, it was, after a while, this cat and mouse game became fun as well. I mean, how do I play the game? Uh, so I, A, beat the casinos consistently and B, not get kicked out uh, so for you had cards. shifts, you would go early, take a break. Hit exactly. CPK, I would wake up at five and... in the morning right. because that's the quietest time of uh, the day in the casinos. And I had gone to bed at 10 o'clock at night. So I have had like a solid seven hours of sleep. Um, and I would wake up and take a shower. Take, I mean, I would be go down to the, the floor feeling fresh as rain, but looking completely disheveled so that the pit bosses and the dealers would think that I had been up all night gambling. And then they would leave me alone. Like, oh, this guy has been, he's just a loser who's been gambling all night. How could they have guessed that it's also an act to make it look like, I mean, just anything that I could do to just not pay attention to me. Or, or if they paid attention to me, and even if they found out that I was a card counter, they would think I was a loser. Whether it's because I was talking too much or I was, you know, stealing chips from my table, whatever I could do to make them think that it was worth their while to let me keep playing. And the mechanics of counting cards is there's six stacks in a, in a holder, right? And you're counting plus and negative. You're trying to get that run of all face cards, right? And then yes. you bet more at that time, right? Yeah, That's and the, the counting system I use, like the most common counting system is called a plus one, minus one system, where high cards have a plus one, minus one value, and low cards have a plus one value. But I used a really complicated system, which, has a which is called a plus three, minus three system. Um, and it allows, I mean, a much more finely tuned understanding of the state of the deck because different cards have different values ranging. I mean, there's seven different weights from plus three to minus three. And, um, and as a result, you have greater betting efficiency and also more the way you play the hand, like sometimes you'll stand on a 16 and sometimes you'll hit on a 12 against a dealer five because of the state of the deck. And having an advanced counting system, a, well, on one hand, it's really hard to do it, but I just practiced like there's no tomorrow at home and I, I became proficient at it. And that gave me an added advantage over the casino and allowed me to beat them with a lower bet variation. And as right. it turns out later on in the story, it also that counting system was instrumental in my landing my Wall Street job. Right. I mean, that's that was your in too to Lehman Brothers, right? Was your knowledge of counting cards. Isn't that true? That's exactly right. I mean, it was, um, I, I had decided that the rest of my life, you know, in late 1992 was going to be spent traveling the world playing blackjack. I knew I had gained almost a 1% advantage over the house. And that was enough to turn it into a living. And, you know, I was, I had planned, that's what I had planned for the rest of my life. But then on a on a spur of the moment trip to Manhattan, I had some friends of friends, you know, who were all employed on Wall Street. And I just happened to meet them in a nightclub. And I, they asked me, like, what do you do? And I couldn't answer what I should do other than accept that I'm a professional gambler. 
because I couldn't call myself a computer scientist because I never had any interest in it. And electrical engineering was in the distant past. Wall Street, I could never imagine I would even end up here. So what else was I other than a professional gambler? But those two words, professional gambler, it's amazing the effect they have on people. And it stopped everyone in their tracks. They wanted to know all about my stories. I mean, a lot of which are in the book. And then at the end of the night, one of them said, like, you should work on Wall Street. I said, yeah, right. I mean, like, I didn't get go to business school. I don't have a you know fancy Ivy League degree. I didn't have, you know, I don't have a business background. And more importantly, I'd once taken a vow that I would never work on Wall Street or live in New York City because New York City was in the 70s, in the 80s, was like a dark and dirty and depressing place. And Wall Street was, to me at least, from a distance, it seemed like a place populated by crooks. So why would I want to be involved with this place? But still, you know, when I went back to San Francisco and I read Liar's Poker and I, I realized that they, there is, they have hired other gamblers in the past. So I decided to put a resume together and put blackjack on the top, computers and electrical engineering at the very bottom, hoping that nobody would notice it, and sent it to a few investment banks. And of those, Lehman and one other agreed to interview me. And, and Lehman asked me to fly down. I used my frequent flyer miles on what I thought was like a foolish in a pursuit. And I came down and all day long, Lehman's traders grilled me on blackjack. Like they asked me everything that they could think of about the game. But the problem is like blackjack had been my life for over two years, almost two and a half years. I knew more about the game than all of my interrogators combined. And I just have had this natural brashness that I didn't hold back. And I, I just let them know it that there's nothing you can ask me that's going to trip me up. And and I conducted myself with the with not knowing that this is what's required in a Wall Street trader. You know, I was brash and I was obnoxious and I was, you know, aggressive and they loved it. But at the end of that day, they said, okay, we want to make sure you're not just all talk. You told us a little while ago that you've counted a deck in as little as 15 seconds. And I had, and, and I, I wasn't lying. I could count a deck in 14 or 15 seconds uh, at the peak of my powers. And they said, okay, here is a deck. We're gonna take one card out of this deck. We'll give you 18 seconds, like a little more than what you think you need. Um, and in those 18 seconds, let's see if you can figure out what the missing card is. Now, under normal circumstances, I should have been able to do that with like at least a 95% you know, probability. But the problem is I'm not at home. I'm not in a casino. I'm on a Wall Street trading floor, which is, it's the first time I've been in this strange environment, you know, and, and a crowd has got gathered to watch me do this, which was, which made me really uncomfortable. You know, blackjack it was a solitary pursuit. It's not a spectator sport. So at the same time, it was clear to me that my job prospects hinged on my performance on those 18 seconds. So I said, okay, fine, you know, let's get a shot. Someone puts 18 seconds on the clock, shouts, go. I pick up the deck, I rifle through it, you know, as fast as I can and count the cards in clumps of two or three. And 16 seconds later, I shouted, done. And of course, the next question is, okay, what's the card? And I got lucky here because the counting system that I used, which was plus three, minus three, there was a 50% probability that the card that they had picked out would have a unique value. So in this case, they had picked out a nine. 
So I said it's a nine and nine has a weight of minus one in my counting system. And it's the only card that has a weight of minus one. So when I reached the end of the 51 cards and the weight was plus, and the resulting number was plus one, I knew the final card has to be minus one because the whole deck adds, has to add up to zero. So I said, it's a nine. The guy turns over you know, the card with a flourish and it's a nine of clubs. And I was like immensely relieved, um, you know, and there was a crowd, there was like, you know, a little bit of clapping, you know, cause it was quite a show, right? It was like a parlor trick, someone had pulled off. And it sounds like, you know, I don't know how many people have tried to do this, but try taking a card out of a deck and trying to identify what number it is in like 15 or 20 seconds. It's extremely difficult to do. It's hard to count cards too. Everybody thinks that they can become a card counter. It's very really, hard. Yeah, it's very it's hard. extremely hard. It took me six or more hours of practice every day for months on end before I was able to, to count cards at home. And then it took me several more months before I counted in a casino ad atmosphere, which is completely different, right? Because there's so many distractions. There's the slot machines, you know, people squealing and, you know, talking to you, asking you for advice, waitresses tapping you on the shoulder a few minutes as a lounge singer building out the audio. I mean, the whole place is filled with distractions, right? It's not like sitting at home and being able to concentrate. So how do you count cards? I mean, it's all this noise and, you know, commotion. That was very difficult for me, even after, you know, having learned to count cards at home. So yeah, it's a very challenging exercise. And then counting on a trading floor was even harder, but you know, I got lucky. It's like going from one kind of uh, bells and whistles all around to another one. Cause the environment of those investment banks, it's very competitive. It's almost like a frat house, like jokes and, and people screaming at each other. It's not, it's not like an accounting office or something, right? Oh, not even remotely. It's a place where, I mean, I hate to say this, but people are rooting for you to fail. I mean, because it's a competitive business. It's a zero-sum game. If someone else fails, it increases the probability of your success. You know, so, yeah. So, I mean, that's how I ended up on Wall Street, by counting a deck of cards in 16 seconds um, on the Lehman Brothers trading floor. And soon thereafter, I was taken into an office and handed an envelope, which had a job offer. I mean, I, I to this date, even though it was uh, almost 30 years ago, 29 and change years ago, I still remember the shock that I received when I opened that envelope and it said, we are pleased to offer you a position as a junior trader at Lehman Brothers, dot, dot, dot. I didn't even read anything beyond that, you know? And I couldn't believe it. I mean, uh, it's like so difficult to get hired in this industry, you know? And all I had, I mean, to me, it seemed like all I had done was, you know, played blackjack for a couple of years, but that was enough for them. And they decided to take a chance on a blackjack player and so I got up, you know, moved lock, stock, and barrel from San Francisco to New York. Right. And so you went in there uh, right, right at the 90s and got involved. 93. Kind of, yeah. 93. That was kind of uh, got involved in mortgage mortgage yes. uh, securities, right? Can you talk about that, what your position was like and what it was like adapting to that environment? It was really difficult. I mean, um, as luck would have it. Even though I'd never heard the word mortgages before, I ended up in the mortgage-backed securities market, you know, and you know some parts of that market would be blamed for the for the financial crisis, you know, 15 years later. But in the very early 90s, in 1993, you know, I showed up not knowing the first thing about finance, like literally nothing. I had never read a book, 
never opened Wall Street Journal, couldn't tell you the difference between a stock and a bond on that day. And, you know, it took no time. Maybe it took an hour for me to be exposed as a know-nothing. And, you know, and as a result, you know, I was only given the most menial of jobs on the trading floor. Like, I made copies, I answered phones, I faxed. This is when faxing was still a thing. I faxed reports to clients. The, f the funny thing is, the my most important job during those first few months was fetching food for these masters of the universe. Like, because their time was so valuable, they couldn't be bothered to go down to the cafeteria and pick up food for themselves. So I would take everyone else's order, everyone's order, and I would go down to the cafeteria and get food for everyone. Uh, because that's all I was good for initially, because my time was the least valuable on the trading desk. Because I didn't know anything. I mean, fortunately, within three or four months, I sort of learned enough to, to show that you know, my time had some value and it should be spent better. It was better spent on the desk. So they picked another flunky, you know, on the desk and said, okay, from now on, you're going to get food and take his order as well. So in a flash, I went from being a waiter to being waited upon. And there, can you describe what it's like in those investment firms? Because there's like a front end, back end. Yes. Support. Yeah. I, I write about this in the book and it's funny. Like, I, I don't think anyone thinks of it like this, but Investment banks, uh, especially the trading floor particularly, it functions very much like um, a British manor house. Like if you watch Downton Abbey, Abbey or upstairs, downstairs, you know the aristocrats live on the upper level and the cooks and maids and all the service staff on the lower level. And the upper level, the aristocrats of Wall Street or of a trading floor are its salespeople and, and especially the traders because they are the front office of the of the establishment and they, they're client facing and they're responsible for generating um, the lion's share of the firm's profits. The back office, on the other hand, is, are the, again, akin to the cooks and maids of Wall Street. They, they sit in the back, in the shadows. Um, they, they check out every trade, compute the nightly profit and loss statements, compile position sheets. They're essentially the clerks of Wall Street. But the edifice would crumble if they didn't do the job properly. And, and their jobs are essentially to make sure the front office functions smoothly. So as a result, the traders and, and salespeople of the front office lord over the cooks and maids of the back office, the clerks, the, 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 the people who check out your position reports and, and trades and profit and loss statements. And there's a dramatic difference in personality between the two sides. I mean, traders tend to be very brash and obnoxious and loud. Whereas I don't think I've ever heard a back office personnel ever raise their voice. They wouldn't dare, even though they're floating around the trading floor all the time. So it's... Right. It's just, it's a lot of people don't know how the, those places function, you know, and how much money's involved. Like you talk about, you're involved in deals, millions and millions of dollars, global... Hundreds of millions of dollars, yeah. Right. It's, it's, well, that's what it is, right? This, there is this sense of self-importance that goes with transacting, you know, like every bond trader ends up transacting in deals worth, if not tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars, certainly tens of millions of dollars on basically a daily basis. It becomes part of life. I mean, and the only way to do this is to dissociate yourself from the denomination of the chip. And just like, you know, a green chip or a black chip in a casino is a $25 chip and a $100 chip, and you can't really think about the money when you're playing the game. Um, 
just like this, you can't think about the amount of money that is involved. You know, it's just the the way of the of this world. And you know, you just close your eyes and remove six zeros from every number and just deal with it. Right. But also you don't think about the consequences of the investment for the so-called investor too. There's well the, that the, yes. That is very true. I mean, and uh, and I do talk about this to some extent, and then uh, through the various deals that I structured and what I witnessed myself in the seven years I worked at investment banks before spending two decades, you know, working for hedge funds. The atmosphere at an investment bank is not only abusive to its junior employees; it's extremely rapacious towards its clients. And I'm not sure how many clients realize this. Um, Wall Street trading desks view the business as a zero-sum game, just like casinos view blackjack or slot machines as a zero-sum game. A player's loss in a Las Vegas casino is the house's gain. Similarly, a client's loss on any transaction is a trader's gain. And a trader's gain translates into his year-end bonus. So there's a direct relationship between, you know, if you can rip the client off. And by the way, I've seen on numerous occasions, heads of trading desks stand up in the morning at 8.30 and rip their hands and look around and say, okay, who are we going to rip off today? I mean, that is the attitude. And and it's it's a culture that people come into when they're, they're out, of grad, out of undergrad and when they're 22 odd years old, and maybe they become part of it. But I had lived a life before I came to Wall Street. I'd come from India. I'd I'd migrated to America, gotten a degree in computer science, worked in the computer industry. As much as I hated it, the culture was very different in the computer industry. I'd been a professional blackjack player, so I had done all these things. So my perspective on Wall Street was very different. I had come here to play a game and to, to play it well, well, or to play it right. Um, and I had no interest in becoming an expert in deceiving gullible clients. So I just had a very difficult time in my early years um, in dealing with the two two things, like how I was abused and then how clients were abused. And the clients don't know this, but I'm on the other side of the fence and I'm watching this on a nearly a daily basis. And after two years of this, I couldn't take it anymore. And I, I wasn't sure I wanted to continue in this business. And I probably am the only Wall Street trader who walked away from the business for three and a half months for a little over 100 days not knowing if I was going to come back. And Lehman was furious with me, the, my bosses. Like, I mean, they had invested two years in me, and here I am just walking out uh, of the place. And they made it very clear to me that there might not be a job for me when I come back. And I said, that's fine. I mean, I, I'm leaving because I need to get my sign. Because two years in Wall Street was, was, a vi- was probably, the, those first two years, early 93 to early 95, was the roughest period of my life. You know, and I just had enough. And I said, I need to walk away from this for some period of time to do two things. First, to gain some perspective on what is it that I'm doing? And B, to figure out if I should even continue. And, you know, it was probably in hindsight, it turned out to be the most pivotal 100 days in my life. Because as it turned out, I was also getting married at the time. That's a side note. But in those three and a half months, I figured out why I had come to Wall Street. And it's, I'd sort of forgotten that over the last two years, even though I knew when I showed up in early 93. I'd come here to play a game and beat the market, just like I had played blackjack to beat the casinos. So I said, okay, I'm going to go back to Wall Street. I mean, I do go back. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a Wall Street book. Um, and all I, w- I was going to spend all my time on devising a strategy 
to beat the U.S. mortgage market on a consistent basis, day in and day out, month in and month out. And I would either come up, figure out the strategy, or I would just leave the business. Because there was nothing else. I was not willing to be part of an investment bank system where I would get paid large amounts of money because I was great um, at fleecing clients. I mean, that's a skill I had no interest in, in picking up. I wanted to learn how to play this game. And so, so what did you do? What steps did you take to kind of, you said, right. I think in your book, 103 consecutive months of positive returns. Right. So that's where I eventually ended up. Um, I Actually, it's becoming really dark out here. Do you mind if I turn the light on? Yeah, sure, no problem. Is that okay? Because it's yeah. like the, it's in New York. It's become really dark at the moment. No know? problem. So. No problem. Uh, but I think what he did was switch from investment banking to hedge funds, right? I think you ran, if I remember correctly, you ran a hedge fund. Can you explain how hedge funds function too? Can you explain how hedge hedge funds hedge funds function? See, the funny thing about hedge funds is, and I'm happy to go through this, but the irony is most hedge funds do not hedge. The idea behind the word hedge means that you have some offsetting trade against the trade, the primary trade that you have in case you turned out to be wrong. For instance, if you believe the stock market is going to go up and you buy Google stock, that's just a naked bet on the price of Google stock, right? However, if you were to short S&P 500 against it, now suddenly you're kind of hedged against large market moves in one direction to other. You're still exposed to the relationship between Google and S&P 500, but you're not exposed to large scale market moves up or down because presumably Google and S&P 500 have some relationship by which they move. That's what hedge funds are supposed to do, but that's not what they do. Um, in my experience, and I watched this in my sell side years when I worked at investment banks from 93 to 99, um, many hedge funds, and the biggest blow up of that was long-term capital, um, blew up because they, Hedge funds deploy leverage. So for every $1 that a hedge fund has, they might borrow $10 more to buy $11 worth of assets. But long-term capital took it to a whole other you know, um, extent and started borrowing $25, $30, $40 for every dollar that they had. And the problem with this leverage that hedge, I mean, the hedge funds are unique in the, in the sense that they use leverage. They borrow money to buy more assets than they can really afford to buy. So a $100 million hedge fund can easily buy a billion dollars worth of assets by borrowing $900 million. And there's a finely tuned Wall Street infrastructure that allows them to borrow this money. The, the, the advantage of borrowing money is that it amplifies your return by a factor of 10 when you've borrowed nine times as much. But at the same time, it reduces the margin of error by a factor of 10. If you owned $100 worth of stock, uh, with $100 worth of capital, only a complete wipeout can make you bankrupt. However, if you own a $100 billion worth of stocks or bonds against $100 million worth of capital, a mere 10% drop in the market will wipe you out. So that's what makes hedge funds particularly dangerous. And which is why even though I worked in the hedge fund industry for more than two decades, I employed a very conservative approach because all the hedge funds that I'd seen blow up in front of me in 94, 98, and beyond. I mean, and the, the market is littered with the bodies of hedge funds that borrowed too much and invested in a strategy that went awry. And by and large, the strategy that went awry is called a carry trade, where you 
you buy a higher yielding asset and hope to finance it at a lower rate and just collect free money. But contrary to popular belief, these carry trades blew up long-term capital in 1998 and it, they blew up all of Wall Street and almost the entire world in 2008. Right. And can you talk about what led up to 2008? I mean, it was an incredible year, um, time to be alive in the financial world because everything was. came to a halt. Yeah, it, it was. And it was, you know, to me, uh, I mean, I had spent seven years formulating an investment, me investment method that was supposed to be independent of the macroeconomic environment, whether the housing market was in a bubble or a crash, I was supposed to come out ahead no matter what. So I was truly hedged. So I, that's why I called myself you know, a proper hedge fund. But that was not the case with the world at large, you know, and including some of the large firms, like a large Swiss bank where I was employed from 99 to 05. And when I discovered what was going on, I was like horrified because it was clear to me as early as fall of 2004 that these things called CDOs and subprime mortgages were extraordinarily dangerous things. Now, at the time in late 04, I've, I felt the problem was confined to this one Swiss bank where I was employed. I could never have imagined that it was pervasive and spread throughout the financial industry, which took me a few more years to figure out. But I was so freaked out by CDOs and subprime mortgages in fall of 2004 that I, even though I was very happy at my job, I got up and left. And in early 2005, I went to work for a no-name British hedge fund uh, that was not invested in, in credit products like CDOs and subprime in any fashion. And they didn't even have an office in America. No few people in America had even heard of them. Eventually, they grew to become the largest hedge fund in Europe, like a few years later. But when I agreed to join them in late 04, early 05, they were only two or three years old. And you know, people were shocked. I had abandoned this huge, prestigious Swiss bank to work for a complete no-name British hedge fund. But in hindsight, it was the most brilliant move of my time, of my life, because the, the actions taken by the Swiss bank in terms of just loading up the balance sheet with risky assets, like CDOs and subprime are the two of the biggest examples, would cause an unfathomable blow up at this firm and, of course, the rest of the world as well in 2008, where this company would lose, I think, something like $40 billion in write-downs on their positions, and their market value would drop by an astonishing $100 billion. And if it wasn't for the Federal Reserve and the Swiss government bailing them out, you know, not just this Swiss bank, virtually every bank, every investment bank would have ceased to exist. Right. There was, I mean, I think uh, Bernanke dropped $25 trillion, just printed money up. and Right, and after that, yes. Yeah, incredible. Yeah, I mean, and, incredible sums. And these, these trillions that the... That the <clears throat> I mean, obviously, the money was just given to these banks in 08, you know, in the bailout. But even subsequently, the Federal Reserve has indulged in this large-scale quantitative easing. I mean, they're taking it away right now, but it's kind of closing the barn door after the horse has already bolted. Uh, but for 10, 15 years, from 2008 till late 2021, the Federal Reserve was involved in a quantitative easing of some kind where they just printed money left, right, and center. Now, on the surface, they say, well, it's to help the economy and, you know, um, and the individual or sustain employment and all that stuff. But I don't believe any of it. I believe that the Federal Reserve um, is captured by the stock S&P 500. And every time the stock market crashes and, you know, or has a cold, the Federal Reserve takes corrective action. 
when the flip happens and stock market goes haywire, they don't do anything. Right. And, you know, I, I don't talk about this in the book, but I wrote uh, in an op-ed piece that I mentioned this fact. Ben Bernanke, right, was a Federal Reserve for years, printed trillions of dollars. His salary at the Fed was roughly $200,000 a year. Right nothing after for he, the amount of money that he controls, it's nothing. Right. Right after he leaves the Federal Reserve, he takes part in a string of dinners where in one evening he is paid $250,000 a night. One evening. Now, how many people can afford to pay that for an audience with the, with the ex-Federal Reserve chairman? Only the rich people, the rich investment banker, no, investment banks, financiers, investors, you know, just very wealthy people. Janet Yellen so, doing the same thing today. Exactly. And Janet Yellen, she stopped being the treasurer, you know, the federal chairman in 2018, became the, or 19, and became the treasury secretary in 2021. In 1920, in those two years, she collected over $7 million in speaking fees. Right. Citigroup paid her a million dollars. Um, I mean, you really have to ask, what is this, this money for? And actually, the ultimate proof of this is in, lies in the payments made to Hillary Clinton by Goldman Sachs and all these other major financial institutions. Before 2016, before that election, I think Hillary Clinton used to command something like three or $400,000 for a speech. After the election, that number went down to 25,000 by a factor of 10. Now I ask you why? Has she suddenly become a less interesting person to talk to? Or is it the fact that she will never be president again? The latter. So, in it's my mind, the speaking fees are nothing but legal, legalized form of bribery. I think you're right. So the question is, when Federal Reserve Chairman is collecting $200,000 a year as the Federal Reserve Chairman, but can look forward to a $250,000 payday every night, who are they really serving while they're in office? Wall Street. Well, yeah, I mean, not the common man, because no, no, it's no. the stock market, right? It's people invested in the stock market, which is largely the rich and the powerful. And, you know, they, I mean, the interests of the common man, I think, are, you know, I mean, maybe now the Fed is coming around to thinking about this. But, I mean, if you think about it, inflation has gone up lately. And one of the drivers of that is, you know, there's labor shortage. So wages are going up. And it's astonishing to me how the Fed is so quick to take action when wages go up. And yet, when there was massive asset inflation in stocks and bonds, that was not a problem right. because stocks and bonds are owned largely by rich people. Right. The plunge protection team is what they call it. They That's set right. something and think so that if the stock market, stock market goes down, liquidity goes into the market. So Well, it started in 1996, um, back when, I don't know if you recall, um, that was the last time I remember any Fed chairman talking negatively about the stock market because Alan Greenspan came out and used this famous term, irrational exuberance. And he got slammed for it, such that he went from talking about the irrational exuberance of the stock market to the Greenspan put, where every time the market goes down, Greenspan's there to bail it out. So, I mean, I, I don't remember a single time since then where Fed chairman has said, well, the stock market might be frothy or maybe too high. Correct. Doesn't happen. Somehow they've cast their lot. And the, 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 the niftiest trick that Wall Street has pulled is to equate the economy, the, the main street economy, with stocks. Right. In reality, the two have very little to do with each other. Yes, there's a trickle-down effect, but that's been debunked, I think. Yeah. There's a lot of evidence to debunk that. 
but Main Street and Wall Street have completely different objectives and you know different agendas. And to conflate the two of them with each other is like a huge mistake. But and yet that's what's been done for at least a quarter century. And look at this whole mortgage meltdown. A lot of these banks were made whole, but the average guy on the street with his house, you know, they had to lose repossessed. their house or whatever. Yeah, so they were repossessed. And and yeah, and, and really this is what about. really infuriates me because about the the bailouts is. Every investment bank got something like 25 billion or more. I think AIG got 100 some billion, you know, some insane amount of money. Why couldn't you give every homeowner $10,000, $20,000? It's an in, infinitesimal amount, small amount of money. But that was considered a moral hazard. Like right. giving 10 or $20,000 to a homeowner would create a moral hazard. But giving 25 to 50 billion to an investment bank, well, that's fine because that's a systemic risk. It was very strange. The whole 2008 and the who got the money to, because like Washington Mutual went away. Lehman Brothers no longer yeah. exists, right? Bear Stearns, but some of these other ones did. So it was really something else. But the rich stayed rich, that's for sure. Well, that's the whole, I mean, that's where not just the Federal Reserve, by the way, I would take it even a step further and say the entire U.S. establishment from the government to the Supreme Court to, I mean, obviously the Federal Reserve, even the universities, like everything, I think, it's this income inequality. I mean, if you just take Harvard, for example, arguably the most prestigious of US universities, their endowment is a direct reflection of increased inequality in America. You know, and because I wrote this in the op-ed where I said, you know, once you've bought all the material goods that your heart desires, you might as well shoot for immortality by buying a hospital wing or a museum at a university or a school somewhere, you know, something like that. And, you know, if, you know, and I, and I have no sympathy for all these charitable foundations that all these billionaires have set up, because if you really had this charitable attitude, then maybe during the 80s and 90s, you should have allowed more competition for Microsoft, you should have charged less for your products, or just be a raider and say, you know what, I want to make as much money as I, as I want, and that's it. It's fine. I mean, it's, a cap it's capitalism. You're allowed to do that. But don't then turn around and be this benevolent, you know, charitable human being that's suddenly discovered that, you know what, I want to help people. Well, where were you 25 years ago? Right. After you've accrued all this money. Exactly. After you've raped and pillaged the population, you know, and this is not necessarily true for every billionaire, because, I mean, some of them have actually added a lot of value. But a lot of them have, have become supremely wealthy by controlling the political process, if nothing else, and by eliminating competition. This whole mergers and acquisitions that has gone on in America is insane. And, and it's a little known statistic that I like to quote, which is that in 1996, there were over 8,000 publicly listed com companies in America. Today, there are only 4,000. Like, what kind of growth is that? The GDP has grown by a factor of two, if not more, maybe three or four in this time. And the number of companies has shrunk by half. It's all through mergers and, I mean, it's not that innovation has gone away. It's through mergers and consolidation. How many airlines do we have? How many options for cable TV do you have in your, in your town? You'll be lucky to have two. two. Yeah, I mean, right. why? Why do Verizon and Cox not com compete with each other? Right, so you just have because, corporate consolidation that's incredible, like... Uh, right, and it's... it's a, exactly, they need to use antitrust to break up, you know, social media companies, financial corporations, which are much bigger today than they were in 2008. So, I mean, next next time they're guaranteed to get bailed out if they got bailed out in 08. Right. 
I mean, that's what the so. precedent of, of the 2008 bailout is. Right. And in, in my opinion, I think that's the root cause of, I mean, I really believe and this, as an immigrant, I was amazed when I came to America in the 80s that by the fact that anyone who wanted to work hard could attain a decent standard of living. All you needed was a, was a desire and the ability to work hard. doesn't matter what you were doing, right? And that's what made America special to me. But 25 years of playing it wrong has brought us to a point where there is no longer true in this country. And that's why we have all this strife and the division. I so I believe... The, the problems being faced by America today, you know, could have been foretold. And I think it's greed and, you know, uh, that has a lot to do with it. And, um, and I'm not sure how you come back from here, but my contribution to the, to the problem is writing a book which shows there is an alternative way to even function in a place as rapacious and as cutthroat as Wall Street. You can follow your own path. You can devise a method. You can, it's possible, it's okay to not be too greedy either. I mean, to try and focus on the game, not so much just the money that you can make by hook or crook, you know. Uh, and, and I really believe if people were to focus on playing the game well to, their, to the best of their ability, they would not only end up with money, you know, they would also be able to sleep well at night because that's what happiness means to me, playing the game well during the day, sleeping well at night. Right, and you argue that there is such a thing as enough money, right? There is. There is, and I and I, I strongly believe that beyond a certain point, happiness is not only not correlated with money; it could be inversely correlated with money. I have known some incredible wealthy, incredibly wealthy people in my life, you know, during my quarter century on Wall Street, and I can tell you categorically, beyond a certain point, money does not buy you happiness. If anything, it can buy you more troubles, and so you have to find that happy medium. The irony is when I started working in the computer industry and I was getting paid $37,000 a year, I really felt wealthy beyond my wildest dreams. And, you know, people make seven figures on Wall Street and feel like they're poor because the guy next to them is making a little bit more than them. And it's just the whole relative, you know, performance is what sort of led to the crisis as well because everyone wanted to make more money than everyone else. And Chuck Prince, the CEO of Citigroup, even said this, like, oh, we must dance while the music is going on. And one day this will all be a problem. But for now, the music is playing. Well, the next year, the music stopped. And so I think I'm trying to impress through this book, apart from just telling it in, in an interesting story, is that it is possible to play the game well and still win and play it right, not just from a method standpoint, but also from a moral standpoint. Perfect. That's a great way to end it. Really a great book. Great sense of humor, too. Your stories are really uh, fascinating. I, I've laughed along reading the book, but I also learned a lot. It's got, you have that inside perspective, so I highly recommend people get Play It Right. And there is an audio book, correct? There is. It's narrated by Fajr al Kasi, who has a great voice. I'm, for a while, I thought about narrating it myself, but I found it difficult, so they found a great narrator. Um, so you can get that. There's also a hardcover version, right? And then the there is a hardcover. There is an ebook. It's available on Kindle. It's available, you know, everywhere books are sold. I mean, I know it costs more than the Kindle version, but I would strongly recommend the hardcover because the book is beautifully produced. It's, I mean, I've obviously read the book on both mediums a hundred times, if not more, you know. And I think it's a much more pleasurable experience to read it as a physical book. Just the paper, the print, the ink makes for a much more 
for the lack of a better word, sensuous experience. Right. And, there, and there's a lot more left in the story, a lot more in your book. I mean, you worked in Wall Street to 2019, so the uh, market crash. And I highly recommend people check this out. And if people want to reach out to you, Kamal, where's the best place to do that? Um, I have a website, which is a shameless copy of Michael Lewis's website. His website is michaellewiswrites.com. So my website is kamalguptarights.com, as in W-R-I-T-E-S. Um, and um, I recently signed on to Twitter because my publisher in India, which is Bloomsbury, uh, wanted me to have a Twitter handle in the press release, which came out um, two days ago, three days ago. And the book will be released in, the book is available now in, in North America and the UK. And it will be released in India on June 18th um, uh, under the same title, but slightly different subtitle and uh, a different cover and different publisher. But it's 99.9% .9 the same book. And um, so I have a Twitter handle called Kamal Writes. Come on, right. So you can look on that. I'll put those links in the show notes so people can click through, check out your website. But congratulations on your first book. Uh, keep writing. Really an excellent book. I, I Thank you it. very much. And I'm going to try. I'm working on book two. We'll see. Oh, good. Congratulations. Title of this one again is Play It Right, The Remarkable Story of a Gambler Who Beat the Odds on Wall Street, published May 10th, 2022 by Kamal Gupta. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you. All right, Steve. Steve.